This morning we are beginning, I guess you could say in earnest, beginning our study of the book of Judges. Last week we did a big overview, and I would recommend that to you. If you weren't here last week, recommend that sermon to you because it kind of helps you to see the forest. Now we're going to get into the trees starting this week and walk step by step through this book. It's a, uh, it's a, a really interesting and unusual book, kind of a collection of short stories, not a pleasant book to read. A book full of darkness and violence. It's also a sequel story. It's one of those to-be-continued stories. I wonder if you like those. Do you like a to-be-continued story? Maybe it depends. Sometimes I think it depends on how long you have to wait for the sequel, right? I mean, if you've got to wait a whole week for the next one, then maybe you don't like them. If, you got, if you're binge-watching on Netflix and you just got to wait a couple seconds, and sequels are great. We've been, we've been working our way through the original Star Wars trilogy in our family, and I've just been blown away by how hard it must have been to wait three years between Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. I mean, those of you who were alive, I was born during that interim period, during the, the time between the times, if you will, uh, between 1980 and 1983. That's a long wait for an incredible sequel, but on the subject of sequels, Judges is a sequel to Joshua that comes right before it. In Judges, we pick up the sequel, not the prequel. So if we want to understand what happens when Judges starts out with a bang, if we want to understand what's happening there, what's going on, why things are happening the way that they are, we've got to take a little bit of a look back. That's what we're going to do this morning. So the first chapter of Judges, through the first few verses of chapter 2, It's one of two introductions to the book. The book starts with two separate introductory passages, chapter 1 and then chapter 2, that set the stage for all the individual short stories that come through the rest of the book. And this first one is really connecting us to what happened in Joshua, the book that comes right before Judges. What I want to do is I want to read the first few verses from chapter 1 of Judges, uh, get us started on what we're going to look at this morning. And then I want to set the scene. Uh, we are, we're going to move through Judges chapter 1 in three separate scenes, but we're going to start with a look back to Joshua and how the story gets set up. So first, would you please stand with me in honor of God's word while I read? I'm going to go ahead and read the first 10 verses of Judges chapter 1, and then we're going to set the stage together. This is God's word from the book of Judges. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord. Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up. And the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. And they found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him, and they caught him, and they cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. 
And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it, and struck it with the edge of the sword, and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country, in the Negeb, in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. The name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba. And they defeated Shishai and Ahiman and Talmai. And this is God's word. You can be seated. How did I do with those place names? Were you guys buying that? Plenty more of those to come. Passage opens with a bang, doesn't it? Out of nowhere. If you don't know anything about the book of Joshua, it, it, it starts out of nowhere. It announces the death of Joshua, and then it, it, it starts with a question. Who's going to lead us? Go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them. If you don't know anything about Joshua, what you're wondering is, why do we want to go fight against the Canaanites? What's that about? What do we care about them? The book opens pregnant with expectation, like a good and necessary sequel to a movie that's ended with a question rather than with a nice and neatly tied-off story. And if you want to understand why Judges starts out with this question about who's going to lead us to fight against the Canaanites, you've got to step back a couple of steps into the book of Joshua. And I want to do that quickly. Joshua chapter 23. If you take your Bible, just flip back a couple of pages, you'll probably find it. Joshua chapter 23. To make any sense out of the first chapter of Judges or the rest of the book, we've got to know where Joshua ends. So in chapter 23, Joshua, the leader who had taken responsibility for leading Israel after Moses died, he's nearing the end of his life. He knows he doesn't have much longer to live. And so he's speaking to his people. And he's trying to get them ready for the life after him. After he's gone, here's what you'll do. Here's how you'll thrive. He's reminding them of the good things God had done for them in their past. He sets the stage for the next, uh, next chapter in their history by reminding them of all that God has done. He's delivered them from Egypt. He's gone before them into the land and he's driven out nations that were way more powerful than they were to give them this place that he promised them. And now Joshua charges the people to be faithful. He reminds them of their assignments, that they've been given a section of land, tribe by tribe, territory between the Jordan River and the sea. And he reminds them that there's still people living there. So look at verse 4, chapter 23. I've allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I've already cut off, from the Jordan to the great sea in the west. Then the promise, verse 5, just like they've seen him do before. Joshua promises them, the Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight. And you shall possess their land just as the Lord your God promised you. There's the promise. Now comes his warning to them. Verse 6. Be strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left. No compromise, he tells them, on what God has asked you to do in this land that he's given you as his people. And here's why you're going to be tempted to compromise. Verse 7. That you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them, but you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. 
The reason he's giving them this charge at the end of his life, before they go into doing the things that they've been called to do, the reason he's reminding them to hold fast without wavering, without compromise to the law that God had given them is that he knows for now they're surrounded by people who worship other gods. They're surrounded by people that are powerful, that are prosperous, whose lives may look pleasant and happy. Surrounded by people who offer them other options. He knows they're going to be tempted to mix with these nations and to take on their gods as their own. And he's calling them to cling to God, the God who delivered them. What he's doing is he's setting up what happens next as a a kind of referendum on their relationship with God. This is relational. God's law is not just about rule keeping. It's about allegiance to the one who delivered them. To the God who not only made them, and gave them life in the first place, but who delivered them from oppression and had made good on every promise that he'd ever made to them. Joshua is setting up for us a relationship. It's personal. And so he warns, if you reject this God who's done so much for you, through, with whom you've been through so much together, then he won't go in front of you anymore. And he won't deliver you. Look at verse 9. The Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it's the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. Be careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. Remember, it's a relationship here. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. That's where Joshua ends. That's what sets the stage. Israel's been given a charge. They've been given a job to do. And it's not finished yet. So they're at a crossroads. What will they do? That's the question that Joshua ends with. And we're going to get into how Judges begins to answer that question in just a moment. But I want to press pause here. And I want to... I want to take a few minutes this morning for a sidebar that's going to affect, I think, the rest of our time together in Judges. To address a question that you may already have. How is it okay for Israel to drive people out of land that was theirs? How is it okay for God to tell Israel to kill people and dispossess them of their land? Why is it okay for Israel to do what we condemn throughout history anytime we've seen it? For Israel to do something that when we look back and we hear the original colonists coming over from Europe to different parts of the New World claiming to be Israel, to be playing the role of Israel in the world, claiming that native peoples all throughout the New World were like the Canaanites to be dispossessed. That's there. We typically look on that and say, no, you can't do that. That's not okay. 
why is it okay for Israel and not okay for Spain or England or whoever else? And why is it even necessary? Why couldn't they just cohabit? I want to speak to this just for a few minutes this morning, and then I want to invite you to come talk more about it later. I mean, obviously, I'm not even going to be able to scratch the surface of this big deal. Uh, this morning, but I, I would love to go deeper with you if you're interested in this, if this is something that you're wrestling with especially. There are several different things I can suggest to you to read that I think will help at least clarify the issues. Uh, one of them is uh, a book by Timothy Keller back on the resource guide about judges. There's a section in that book that takes up this question in particular, and it's short and concise and points to some really helpful arguments. Uh, to be drawn from it a little bit here this morning, but there's a lot more there too and places I can take you and point you to to read and reflect. And We'd love to do that if that's something that would be helpful to you. This morning, just let me, let me, let me point you towards a couple of considerations that are going to be important to keep in mind as we move through Judges, especially as we see Israel with God's authority killing other nations and taking their land. The first thing I want to mention is, is a caution to you. Be really careful that you don't dismiss the Bible or even, even just the Old Testament because it includes this mandate from God to dispossess Canaanite people. It, it could be really tempting here to just move on and say, well, that's just this ancient document being ancient. It's primitive. Maybe even celebrate the New Testament over against the Old Testament. The Old Testament's full of stuff like this, stuff that we've moved on from. You've got to be careful here because... If you do that, I think you're also dismissing the primary moral authority that you're going to need for condemning imperialism. The Bible teaches in the Old Testament that it's an offense against God to murder someone. That taking something that doesn't belong to you is a sin against God. That oppressing foreigners, people who are different from you, is an offense against God. These are teachings of the Old Testament. These are not... So, so, so being down on imperialism and oppression, that's not just a natural human instinct. You look through the history of humanity and it is one imperial conquest after another. The whole history of humanity is the powerful oppressing the weak. That's normal. That's survival of the fittest. So if you want to be able to stand in judgment over what's normal, you're going to need the moral authority that the Bible gives you. It's the Bible, beginning in the Old Testament, that tells us you don't get to play God. You don't get to, because you have them more powerful, go and oppress someone else. That's not natural. That's revealed word from the God who made us. So be careful you don't dismiss the Bible just because it includes judges. You'll be cutting your legs out from under you if you want to stand up against oppression. Now to some clarifications. Because the reality is, the Bible is here telling, here, here in the Bible it's teaching us, it's showing us that Israel was told by God to do something that is in another part of the Bible condemned. In another context it's wrong to kill. In another context, it's wrong to steal. Why is it okay for Israel to do something here in this setting that is condemned elsewhere in the Bible? That's the real question. 
And I'll offer a few clarifications here. One, it's really important to know that this is not, this book, Judges, is not giving us a universal mandate, okay? It's not teaching us like a law would or like one of Paul's letters would, what's important for all Christians everywhere to do. The Bible's full of lots of different kinds of literature. Sometimes law, like the Ten Commandments. Sometimes poems, like the Psalms. Sometimes history, where the Bible is just telling you what happened, not giving you marching orders to go and do likewise. And in Judges, what we have is is in that last category. This is the Bible relaying something that happened at one time, in one place, for one people, not a law that we're supposed to follow to go and do likewise. That's really important to know and keep in mind. Where the Bible is speaking universally, like in the law, like in the Ten Commandments or in the letters of Paul or places like that, the message is really consistent. Murder is an offense against God. Theft is an offense against God. Here's another clarification. I mentioned it's not a universal mandate. You've got to remember that. It's also not imperialism in the way that we would normally think about imperialism. What Israel is being told to do here by God is not the same kind of conquest that, that, imperial, uh, that, that we could pull from, from the annals of human history and, and, and hold up as examples of one powerful people oppressing another one. It's different from that in some really important ways. So, for example, typically... In, in, in imperialism, what you have is one nation that has power, that has a culture it feels is superior to that of others, that perhaps has a racial or ethnic identity that it feels is superior to others, that gives them right, gives it the right to, to even maybe even the duty to conquer inferior peoples. That's usually what drives imperialism, right? The powerful oppressing the weak because they can and maybe even they should because they're better. That is explicitly not what's happening here. Listen to what God says about this conquest in Deuteronomy chapter 9. Early, early on, looking still uh, way into the future, uh, uh, imagining the time when this was going to happen, predicting that it would happen. Here, here's what God says to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 9. He's, tell, he's told them he's going to give them some land. But he says, Do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you. It's because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. It's not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart you're going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations the Lord your God is driving them out before you. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. So Israel's conquest of these lands that didn't belong to them was not about Israel having power or Israel about having culture or Israel about having ethnic identity that was superior to anyone else in the world. In fact, it was in spite of Israel that God was using them in this way. So what was, we've been talking about what this wasn't, okay? What was this for? Why did God tell them to do something that if they had chosen to do it on their own, without a word from him, he would have condemned I want to point you to two reasons for this conquest and then again invite you to come talk more if it would be helpful. One is embedded in that passage I just read from Deuteronomy 9. This conquest is about judgment of sin. God here is choosing to use the nation of Israel as an instrument in His hands for His purposes 
to judge people that deserved it for their wickedness, for their oppression of others. What we have here in Judges, Joshua and in Judges is an inbreaking, if you will, of something the Bible says is coming on all people everywhere. The Bible is really straightforward, friends, that God always punishes evil, always. And that a day is coming on which He will punish every shred of it, every trace, throughout all of history, over all the face of the globe. No one will escape His sight. What we have here and in a couple of other places in the Bible is a window into that big judgment that's coming, actually breaking in where we can see it. It doesn't happen often. It's mostly deferred for a time that is yet to come. But sometimes in the Bible, we see a a window opening up and we, we see it happen in front of us. Think of when God sent his people Israel into exile. It wasn't because the Babylonians or the Assyrians who conquered them were wonderful people who deserved it. They weren't. God judged them later for their iniquity. But in that moment, God used them as his instrument for a judgment that was just. And in this possession of the land that belonged to the Canaanites, the Bible says that's what's happening here. God is punishing people who deserved it because of their sin against him and against each other. So the passage teaches the importance of judgment. That's one thing it does. It also teaches the importance of influence and context for a life of holiness. What we read from Joshua 23 was really clear. The fact that there were other peoples worshiping other gods living in this land while Israel came into it was dangerous for Israel. What this author knew and what ends up playing out in Israel's history is that Israel does not have the strength to resist other options. Their hearts were fickle. They were always looking over their shoulder. They were always prone to seeing people around them having things they wanted and thinking, if I had their gods, I'd have what they have. And God warned them. And told them to purify this land so that the whole thing is holy. God hasn't given us that same command. He hasn't told us to put ourselves into a bubble where we have no other influences except Christian ones. We live in a different time and he's doing things in a different way than Israel. But the question of influence still matters. And it's one that you need to be confronted with as we move through Judges. Who are you listening to? What communities are having the biggest effect on how you see the world? On what makes sense to you? On what seems desirable to you? On what you love? What voices, what communities are shaping you as a lover in this world? All of us are shaped by other people. What makes sense to us, what seems reasonable to us, what seems desirable for us, all of that is shaped by the people that we live around. Who are you listening to? Jesus has called us to be in the world. But he's called us not to be of the world. 
And Judges is going to be an opportunity for us to consider how we're doing on that front. It's also going to remind us of the importance of the local church. God has placed us into churches to be communities that form us. To be communities of holiness, much like Israel in the land was supposed to be and failed to be. The local church is meant to be that. Communities of unmixed influence, of holiness, of people who belong to Jesus, shaping one another. Hebrews 3 says it's up to you to make sure that none of you fall prey to an unbelieving heart as Israel did. Judges is going to remind us of the importance of this. That's my sidebar. I wanted to give plenty of time to it because, friends, it really does matter. And I want to continue to talk about it with you if that would be helpful to you. Please come see me after the service and we can go deeper. For now, I want to take you further into the details of of Judges. What we've seen is the setup. We've seen the question that Joshua ends with. It's a huge question. There's tension in the air. What are they going to do? What are they going to do about these people who still live in the land that God had wanted to give to them? How are they going to respond to the charge that Joshua has given them? That sets up scene number one in our story this morning. And at first, all the signs are good. After the death of Joshua, there's no panic. There's no power struggle. This isn't one of those things like from England's history where where the king dies and all of his relatives start to fight with one another over who's going to have the throne. There's a vacuum here, but they're unified. In fact, after the death of Joshua, we're told Israel is humble about it. They come together to ask of the Lord, who should lead us? Verse 1, who's going to go up first to us? And, 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 the, and what, they're, what they're asking is, who's going to lead us into obedience? They still want to obey. Who's going to go up first with us to fight the Canaanites? We know that's what we're supposed to be. That's what obedience is going to call for. Everything starts out great. The Lord answers, Judah will lead you. And the next 19 verses describe Judah taking up the mantle of leadership, moving on from victory to victory. We read some of them earlier when I had you stand and we read the first 10 verses. You saw him go against this, this uh, much larger group at Bezek, 10,000 people, and they conquered them. You also got, as an aside, you got a little window into what I was saying earlier about God judging the nations that already lived there for things that they deserve to be punished for. You had the, the king whose thumbs and toes were cut off acknowledging he had done the same to 70 other kings and now God is giving him what he deserves. You have, even in the mouth of the judged, an acknowledgement that God acts right when he chooses to punish sin. You see the, uh, the, the victories that are told of, uh, in verses 8 to 10. They went up into the hill country and the Negev and into the lowland. They went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron, one of the really important cities that, they, that readers would have wanted to know about. And then skipping ahead, verses 17 and 18, you see them back on the warpath, Ju- Judah and Simeon, going up against the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath, and devoted, they devoted it to destruction. And then they captured Gaza with its territory, and Ashkelon with its territory, verse 18, and Ekron with its territory. One after another after another, they go on to victory. Judah doing exactly what God had told them to do. Everything is on track. So far, the story reads like a happy sequel. There's no tension yet. Everything's happening according to plan. Things are just picking up with the same triumphant and optimistic tone of Joshua, the book of Joshua. God is with them. And then verse 19 brings the turning point. 
Verse 19 says, And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country. So far, so good. But, the all-important but, he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Now, I know that reading through this, if you read the whole chapter, you'd probably just blow right past that line. I did the first times I read it. But we got to pause here. This is really important. He couldn't obey God. Judah couldn't finish the job. Couldn't pursue obedience all the way to the end because these people had chariots of iron. Really? I mean, chariots of iron, were, they were a big deal in that time. They weren't necessarily the jump from a tank to a nuclear bomb. But they were one of those epical shifts, right? Where you, where you have a kind of weapon that everyone else is using, and then someone else figures out how to ramp things up. In the arms race of the ancient world, the chariot was a huge jump. And if you didn't have them, you're going up against them on foot, then wisdom told you, you just don't go there. You don't do that. It's a losing battle, obviously. If you don't have chariots, you don't fight against chariots. The chariots wouldn't work up in the hills, so as long as Judah was up there, they were fine. They couldn't drive them over the rocks. But once you get down into the plain, well, Judah figured, I guess, they'd gone far enough. The wise and reasonable play was to leave them alone. But Judah had the promise that they weren't fighting their own battles anyway. Joshua had reminded them in the passage we read from Joshua 23 that one man puts to flight a thousand. They had that track record, obviously, from their history. They had seen God deliver them from Egypt when they were nobodies. They'd seen God wipe out a whole army of chariots in the Red Sea after they had crossed. They'd seen God give them food from heaven and water from a rock. They'd seen God destroy a fortified city they had no chance to conquer in Jericho, all because they blew some trumpets. And they'd seen God drive out bigger, stronger armies time and time again in Canaan as they'd moved through it. But now, they get confronted by these chariots of iron and they figure, this one's a bridge too far. It was an opportunity for faith to trust God above the wisdom of men and to let him prove his power to them again. But instead, from fear or from prudence or from the better part of valor, however you want to call it, from unbelief, they decide to leave the chariots alone. And it's like this this decision from Judah, their leader, just opens up a floodgate of compromise. Scene two in this chapter is all about compromise. Israel going just so far with their obedience to God, but not all the way. You see it in in verse 21 of chapter 1, when the people of Benjamin decide not to drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. And Jebusites lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. You see it in verses 22 through 26, a little anecdote where the tribe of Joseph, or his, his two sons, 
where they went to scout out Bethel and decided to make a covenant with a spy who would help them get inside information and then in response they would let him live and let him stay. Which sounds like typical military tactics, right? If you want to know what your enemy's up to, you've got to get somebody who's on the inside. You want to get a spy. That sounds fine, except that God had just told them. In Joshua 23, where we read, don't make any covenants with the people in this land. You will have one covenant and one covenant only, and it's with me. Our relationship depends on faithfulness and absolute allegiance. Don't make any covenants with them. And then here, the house of Joseph, making a covenant with this man. Letting him live, build his own city, a place where Canaanite culture could thrive and continue. Then, starting in verse 27, it's one tribe after another who didn't drive out the nations. I'm just going to hit these fast. Read with me. Follow, with, follow along with me. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Sheon and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblium and its villages, etc., etc. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. Then, verse 29 Ephraim didn't drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalal or the Canaanites. So the Canaanites lived among them and became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko or the inhabitants of Sidon or Alab or Oxib or Helba or Afik or Rehob. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath. So they lived among the Canaanites. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. And the The people of Dan end up being cool with that and living with it. One after another after another, Judah's compromise has just opened a floodgate. The people followed him as their leader, and this is what happened. Now with Judah, it was fear that led him to stop short of full obedience to God. He didn't believe God could deliver as God had promised to. With these other tribes... It was their own strength that compromised their obedience. Once they had conquered, they start to figure, why would you want to drive out someone who could be useful to you? They're no threat. We've just beat them. So one after another, they start putting them to forced labor, making slaves of them. So if, if Judah was doubting God's power to deliver, all these other tribes in their own strength are now doubting God's wisdom. Surely it wouldn't be better to obey God and do what he's called us to. Surely it would be better, surely the, it's more reasonable to make use of the people that we've conquered. Whether from fear or from, from doubt about God's wisdom or goodness, Israel is here falling guilty, falling prey to the same sorts of unbelief that all of us experience at one time or another. In our weakness, we doubt God's strength. We look at his commands as too much for us and we say, we can't. In our strength, often when we have other options, when we have other things that we love more than what he's called for from us, we doubt his goodness to limit us. We doubt his wisdom in the choices that he makes. But whether in strength or in weakness, we face Israel's test. Will we obey completely or just as far as it seems reasonable to us? That's a question we're going to continue to answer and face together in the weeks to come. 
As we move further through the book, every story presents some version of that question. But I want to wrap up this morning with a couple of minutes on God's response. Scene number three, in chapter two. God has seen Israel's half-hearted obedience to them. And now the angel of the Lord, a messenger from God, a mysterious figure who shows up throughout the Old Testament, goes up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he says this to the people of Israel, speaking for God. I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I kept my word. And I said to you, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down your altars. And what have you done? You made a covenant with the people of this land, just like I told you not to. And you left up their altars. You didn't do what I told you to do. What is this that you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. It is a direct quote from Joshua 23. God's response to Israel's sin is one of the most devastating judgments that he ever gives to them or to us. He gives them exactly what they wanted. They wanted to live alongside the Canaanites. And God says, okay. And the rest of the book will prove God's wisdom was greater than theirs, even though they didn't know it. One story after another. This paragraph ends without much hope for Israel. At least not on the surface. But it also points to the gospel in a powerful way. That we're going to unpack together as this series continues. Friends, the gospel, the truth of God come to us in Jesus to take the punishment that we deserve so that we could have the life that he earned. The gospel is born out of God's unwillingness to compromise in the way that we do. Israel compromised. We compromise. But God was faced with an impossible tension that he responded to with no compromise. Verse 1 Reminds us of what he had said. I will never break my covenant with you. He said that to Abraham with no conditions. Centuries before this ever happened. With no conditions he made promises to Abraham to to build him into a people that would be vast and would bless the whole world. No conditions, no strings attached just because he loves him. Because he does what he does. So, verse 1 says, I said I will never break my covenant with you. But then verse 3 of chapter 2, now I say, I will not drive out these nations before you. I'm going to leave them as a snare and a trap. He's passing judgment on them. And he promised that he would do that. So he's promised he will never break his covenant, and he will bless, he will establish them, he will make them a blessing to the nations of the earth. And he's promised that disobedient people don't get blessing. 
What is he going to do? This passage doesn't answer that question. But we know what the easy thing to do would be, don't we? The easy thing to do would be to compromise. Like Israel did. Maybe he could compromise his justice. That seems easiest to us. Even the most applaudable. Like maybe we would even pat him on the back, metaphorically, if he would just forget the demands of his justice. Compromise them. Just let Israel and the Canaanites hang around. Their sin is not so bad. You're bigger than that. Don't let them get to you. But God doesn't look on evil selectively like we do. He takes it personally. Until you accept that. Until you accept that it's right for God to insist that all evil everywhere be punished, then the gospel will never seem moving to you. You'll never be moved by his goodness, by the sweetness of his promises. He'll just be playing his role in the world, which is to always be loving all the time. It seems easier to us that he should just compromise his justice. Just let it go. And stick to your covenant promise that you'll bless them no matter what. He could have also compromised his promises. So you made big promises. That was before you experienced how fickle these people are. No matter what you do, you can almost imagine someone counseling God. No, no matter what you do, you just can't seem to do enough for them. You can't seem to win their trust. So just move on. Draw some boundaries for your own sake. Just, just move on. Compromise those promises that you made. Things have shifted on the ground. But God is, he is not like us. He doesn't change. Even when we change. What he says he does. And he is uncompromisingly committed to his word without condition. The gospel is born out of God's refusal to compromise either his justice or his promise of love. There was only one way for him to resolve this tension. He had to come. So think of Jesus confronted with the cost of absorbing the punishment that sin deserves thinking to the cross that hung over his life every day that he lived. Imagine Jesus not shrinking back in fear like Judah did. Imagine Jesus confronted not with chariots of iron, but with nails of iron and bearing them. Confronted with the thorns and the cross and the grave, he took it all. And he was obedient to the will of his father down to his last breath all the way. He trusted. He obeyed. And in his obedience, he conquered. The gospel is born from the same stories we're going to be considering together throughout the next months. They're obscure, strange, and sometimes unfamiliar. But all of them are pointing us forward to a work that God had prepared even then to do in Christ. It's a work we want to drive into our hearts together now. Let's pray and then sing.
Father, we long for hearts that believe and trust and love your word to us more than we do so far. And we trust that you're forming those hearts in us by your word. And we ask that you do that work now. That this morning, because of what we've seen in Judges, we would love Christ more. Our hearts would be moved by his sacrifice. That our, our eyes would be open to the severity of sin against you. And the scale of what it took for your love to accomplish what your justice demanded. We are not moved like we want to be. So move us now by your word, through your spirit. As we come to you, in Jesus' name, amen.